Hello and welcome to Do You Even Science. My name is Simon Landry and I have this on this episode, very special episode. I've got my friend Yasmin Beydoun co-hosting it. Hello hey, everyone. <laughs> How's it going? going pretty well how are you going well so today we've got a really i think a really fun episode we're going to talk about a lot of things um we um met three years ago three years ago three years ago in halifax at um at an innovation like entrepreneurship thing Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun did you enjoy it i did yeah it was like the first time i've done anything like that right it's really cool so we'll kind of go over that uh have you done have you gone to like I guess nerd camp. It was basically like a nerd camp. <laughs> it was like, really. yeah, nerd camp. Yeah, it was like nerd camp. Uh, have you gone to nerd camps since? Nope. That's, I think, the only time I really did anything like that. Yeah, cool. Uh, and so you, okay, so you are from Halifax. That I am. Did your undergrad yep. there in? I went to Dalhousie and I did my undergrad in neuroscience and French. Why neuroscience and French? I had a passion for the brain and I really wanted to learn more about it and I also I took French throughout most of my schooling and wanted to continue it and I love languages and also languages in the brain so I that's how I ended up doing that and it was really cool. Did you study like uh, specifically language in the brain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, the director of that boot camp we did, um, Aaron, Dr. Aaron Newman, he was my supervisor and he did, he does a lot of um, psycholinguistics, neurolinguistics, uh, looking at language in the brain. So that's, I spent most of my undergrad doing research there and it kind of led to my second degree, um, which I did at McGill. I did um, speech language pathology. Cool. So it was a clinical master's. Uh, so I moved away from research, but kind of kept in contact with it because I really enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. So um, it's funny because the so Aaron Newman, who is at Dow. So we have we actually have like this connection. I don't know if we if we had talked about this. No. So Aaron um, was so I did my PhD in Montreal with Francois Champou in audiology, and. So I, I looked at deafness, the impacts of deafness and cochlear implants on the brain. Um, so basically, like, if you're deaf, does your brain change? And if you have a cochlear implant, which lets you hear again, mm-hmm. does that, like, change your brain back to the way it was before? Or does, does your brain kind of stay the way it was? Or, like, what goes on? And Francois um, did a collaboration with Aaron for what is it resting state mris of deaf people i think that is really cool i did not know that yeah yeah so there was like a project and one of my lab mates yeah so one of my lab mates was on that project cool is that how you found out about the the nice the boot camp we did or the workshop week um i don't know no actually you know how i found that (laughs) um so i for towards the end of my phd i was like getting really restless and kind of um i just wanted to do stuff because like you know how it is you're always in the lab and and so i i got really good at finding opportunities (laughs) um and I had found this like entrepreneurship neuroscience workshop thing and I applied to it. I also had found, I actually went to 
ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, as a researcher looking to get into clinic. So I went to Denver for the conference there. So I was like looking for stuff and I applied to a bunch of things and I I got to travel. Basically, I wanted to travel for free. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah. So you went to Montreal mm-hmm. to do. Okay. Actually, let's back up. Okay. Did you do a lot of research during your undergrad? I did. I spent three out of four years doing research in Aaron Newman's lab. Okay. Um, the first while I was doing research on a project called Langa, which is um, we were working with a uh, web design company to create a game that helps people learn another language. Cool. So it was Spanish and French. And it was really interesting. I learned a lot about... Um, so we were doing a lot of the coding, the manual stuff, and then uh, we got to learn a lot about how how to bridge the game developer world, how to get something you know out there to mm-hmm. teach a language, but having science to back it up. So we were doing okay. a lot of the research to show that participants were learning vocabulary um, through this game. Cool. Really cool. And then I did my own research project in my final year, which was a lot of work and um, I was actually looking at morphosemantic and morphosyntactic that's like jargon I know um, so the different types of grammar mistakes in modern standard Arabic okay um, which I which I do not uh, speak or write in because <laughs> um, I wasn't formally taught Arabic I speak it at home with my parents but it's a completely different language written And looking at whether or not people reading different mistakes have different um, kind of like different neural responses in the brain. And we got some really cool results that showed that um, that people do have different um, brain waves depending on the type of grammatical mistake. Okay. Yeah. So like, did you test yourself? I did not because I can't read. Oh, okay. Like flat <laughs> um, she, she seems to be to have died. Yeah, she's, uh, what happened? We should check up on her. There's nothing. Yeah, I, I took native Arabic speakers who okay. actually spent their education in in back home in the Middle East. Okay. So they were actually formally taught the grammar, and I did not do those the sentences. I had a friend who is like wicked at Arabic grammar who did it and I'm forever grateful. Um, to me, shout out to you if you ever hear this. <laughs> Thank you. I would not be here. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. But that I think is my last um, bit of experience in research before I went into my master's. Okay. So if one of the listeners is an undergrad or mm-hmm. thinking about going into I guess starting their undergrad and they want to do research do you have like pro tips for them yeah hmm. i think the best thing is to find something that you're really interested in mm-hmm. i think if you're doing it just to put something on your resume i know my friends a lot of them did that and they they struggled a lot because they weren't happy and right. you spend a lot of time and hours putting into into research so pick something that you enjoy and it's also okay if you go into something thinking you like it and you're like i don't (laughs) like backtrack into something else that's totally fine not a lot of people go into it and they're like i like languages i like the brain let's do this (laughs) um i was kind of lucky in that but think it's okay to try different things and research is can it's what you make of it so yeah yeah. did you uh were you like a, a bright kid in high school? 
No? <laughs> yeah. I was not a bright kid growing up. I actually, okay. hate, like, I was good in math, but I really did not like reading and writing. And, like, I was doing French and English and was losing my Arabic, which is kind of what got me into this field. Was right, when right. Um, I've always been really interested in how people grow up speaking a language and then because they're not exposed to it, lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a community, which in Halifax, unfortunately, there isn't a big Muslim or um, Lebanese Arabic speaking community that I grew up around. So I lost Arabic, most of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that stayed with me my whole life. And I think when I got to undergrad, I knew that that's something that I wanted to learn more about. And that ultimately led me to um, speech uh, speech therapy because it's something that you work with people who have difficulties in communication whether it was acquired later on in life whether it was something that they were born with um, right. so I, that's what really drew me to it so yeah I would say that it, I wasn't uh, I've always liked learning but I, I think I really didn't like school <laughs> yeah it's so how like it's funny because it's the same it's the same for me okay. uh, is it that you just didn't know how to study yeah, I still yeah. don't think I know how to study. No, neither do I. I really don't. Do Do you get anxious at like tests? Are you a good test taker? I think I'm a decent tester. I think I wasn't super anxious until I got to like later on in my schooling. I think it was mm-hmm. always just like, oh, okay, like I'll study and then see what happens. And then it always did, you know, I did fine. So I was yeah. always just like, oh yeah. But I think... I think the it's more the university atmosphere around you that really makes you very anxious. I think oh, depending on who you yeah. surround yourself with, like I had some friends who were just like a ball of stress at all times and I would just like slowly walk away before an exam because I knew that that, that psychs you out. Right. Um, but yeah, were you very... I think I was the ball of stress. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you'd be like, ah, Simon, you need to go over there. It's exam period. Um, Yeah, no, I, because like I I talked to a a lot of people and you realize when, when you, you get to grad school that kind of like people who do well in undergrad, it's not necessarily the same kind of person Mm -hmm. that, that will pursue um, sort of, graduate studies I'm still trying to figure out like what what who is that person like can we figure it out can we quantify it how (laughs) yeah and is it like is it just that we don't know how to study and then we do okay at undergrad and then we're like okay no no I want like I'll take another shot at this and this time I'll, I'll really do it. Maybe I'll do well. Or like, yeah, yeah. like what draws people to yeah. graduate school? I guess also the difference between doing research-based and mm-hmm. clinical-based. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was considering both when I applied and for, for your grad school for grad school and I actually didn't get into the research program but oh. I got into the clinical program and I was really confused <laughs> at first yeah like, Wait, what um but I guess it kind of chose my path for me um so I'm I don't regret it but it was like yeah I didn't do a lot of research throughout grad school but it's something that I always thought about but cool. yeah what draws people to the difference yeah hmm. I guess it's like ultimately and i feel like this is probably what's going to come out is life kind of chooses for you and then you kind of just roll with it yeah. and you're like oh this is my life now i guess here, <laughs> here. okay this is it yeah. um yeah so did so you would have started so you did three years of research you said mm-hmm. so you would have started your first year undergrad mm-hmm. and then you were like i have all these questions to understand stuff and then 
you saw Aaron Newman. You probably had a class with him, I guess. Um, not until second year. I actually like okay. sought him out on the website. It's like right, right. I have no idea what I'm doing, but this seems interesting. <laughs> and then you what? You just like went up to him and you were like, "Hey, he, are you much. looking for someone?" Like via email. It's like, "Hi, cool. I like this." <laughs> so that's your pro tip right there. Yeah. Like, be put yourself out there. Exactly. Yeah. Like my brother now is an undergrad and he was struggling. He's in biochemistry and mm-hmm. something <laughs> of that sorts and. He was struggling to find a lab because it was really competitive mm-hmm. and he didn't have a specific area that he was really interested in. He just wanted experience. Right. And he would just send out emails to all the profs at different times, even when they said, I don't need anyone now, but I need someone later. Right. He would follow up with them in a few months. So I think being really proactive is definitely, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a really good thing. Did, um, was what you thought research going like were your expectations of research the same as the reality do they match Hmm. yeah yeah i think it really it's so different like i think it was really dependent on what type of research Mm because we had a really cool lab environment really cool research so i found that it was like fun to come in but i knew that like my friends who were doing like cancer research Mm is just like really manual stuff right not a lot of just like thinking of things and like you know, coming up with your own ideas. It was more kind of like, go and do this. So I, you did like a pipetting motion, yeah, right? Yeah, Just, pipetting. So people who aren't like in research cancer, they don't like give cancer to people. And they're like, <laughs> I don't know, can we fix this? Can we fix this? Yeah. It's more like on the, the minute, like, you know, cell level, which yeah. I always didn't find really interesting. Mm-hmm. I was interested more in the higher level stuff that you could yeah. see. Um, so I think it really depends on the level or the type of research that you're you're interested in. Like I've always wanted to learn more about people who do research in, um, you know, history, mm-hmm. research in like sociology, something that isn't you know super like quantitative that we need to see facts and something yeah. changes. Like how how do you approach that? You know, so that's something that. I, find really interesting and I, I don't know a lot about I don't know if you know I, I actually met a guy so oh, I forget his name I wish I could remember because that would be super impressive I find people <laughs> who just drop names like so impressive yeah I can't <clears throat> no I as an aside I think that's the one skill that all successful um, like politicians mm-hmm. and really successful people I think they get that to that like extra level mm-hmm. Because when they see somebody, they're like, oh, hey, like Cheryl or whatever. Yeah. Like, how's your dog doing? So you just know all yeah. these people. Hmm. Or they have people like whispering behind them. Like, Maybe. This person. Maybe. Like, yeah, they just hire somebody. <laughs> yeah. um, so this guy, long story short, I w- that's going to be a long story. Anyway, <laughs> so I was in China for a conference and then... Uh, after the conference, I was flying. This is going to sound like I'm a jet setter. And it kind of <laughs> ties into the whole, like, I was looking to travel during my PhD. I see it now. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was in China for a conference, and it lined up with my partner's conference in Israel, like, the sort of a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. So I was flying from, I don't know, like, Beijing or wherever in China to uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. And... Something happened to my flight. It was like delayed or something. And so I was running to the gate or something. And there was another guy running with me. And I was like, are we running for the same thing? Sure enough, he was too. Turns out this guy 
is an Israeli researcher. Uh, he's like a prof in somewhere in Tel Aviv, I think. And his thing is that he buys, he goes online on like Chinese eBay, buys manuscripts, like super old manuscripts of Chinese like ritual, like pre-cultural revolution um, rituals or whatever. And then he analyzes them because he's fluent in Mandarin as well. And he like recreates these old uh, faith-based rituals that have not been seen in like hundreds of years or something. So that's super cool. Yeah. And that's like his, that's his, his life. That's his life. That's his huh. thing. Yeah. So that's how they, how one person does it. That's and, really uh, cool. Yeah. I wonder if there's anyone else we could some somewhere. If anyone's listening, yeah. to reach out to us. And we would love to know. Exactly. Are you listening to this? Send us a tweet. D Y E S at, or no D Y E S underscore podcast. That we're the, waiting for it <laughs> <laughs> so you did your undergrad at Dell. yep and when did we meet was it at the end of your undergrad i think it was before my last year okay so i think so it was like, finishing third and going into fourth so okay cool it, yeah um <laughs> yeah it does eh? <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> um so i guess we'll talk about where we the thing we went to yeah. and it was so i it was the the radiant nice program mm-hmm. and let's see i've got i've got my little book right here so radiant is the rehabilitative and diagnostic innovation in applied nano no neurotechnology so that's so ra- yeah <laughs> so that's a radiant uh training program and we were at the Summer Institute in Neurotechnology, Innovation, Commercialization, and Entrepreneurship. And that program is funded by the Insert Create Grant, which is the Collaborative, Collaborative Research and Training Experience Program. So many acronyms. So, oh, so many. And they're like super not descriptive. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, so yeah, what do you want to describe kind of what the NICE program uh, yeah. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> Parts of it. Um, it was a two-week program that brings together um, people within different fields, but I know that most of us were doing more um, like science research-based. Um, neuro. I think neuro, everybody did yeah, neuro stuff. I think everyone did neuro. There are a few people who did like um, mechanical engineering, one mm. or two, but mostly neurotech. Um, coming together and learning about learning about yeah learning outside of the normal academia so we have you know taking it and taking what we learn in school and applying it to kind of real life so how do you kind of sell Mm -hmm. this you know uh, like sell you know neurotech how do you make it kind of more accessible to people Mm -hmm. in different markets so yeah, I don't know if you, you know, probably another take on that. but Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, so it was kind of like, a, like I said, two-week program where we had to um, set up these projects. I think we had like five-ish projects yeah, right, yep. that were all based, they were all like evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And then we were in groups of... I think it was four. And four. You were in a group of I was in a group two. of two. Yeah. I felt super great about that. Um, the rest of us were groups of four. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we were in groups of like between two and four. 
and we had two weeks basically to mm -hmm. to like set up a pitch for like an imaginary pitch yeah um which i don't know if you remember this <laughs> but during the pitch competition um so farzaneh my my partner and i gave our pitch and then one of the judges this is like dragon's den yeah style. this is like dragon's den style <laughs> super serious so one of the judges goes that was the worst pitch I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> no, I don't. Dude, I remember that. <laughs> no, I remember him saying something about how serious you were and how, like, you were really professional. <laughs> <laughs> and then just, like, cut me down to size. Yeah, and then turns out, so we learned uh, afterwards that um, this is, like, I'm not throwing shade at him, <laughs> but he um, had uh, a TBI, a traumatic oh. brain injury yeah so like he had a concussion i guess and that uh reduced his um inhibition of of critical comments i guess so he had apologized oh, okay. he ended so up apologizing. like a social like a communication I, yeah i guess i don't know anyway i that's kind of what kind of like what i study <laughs> yeah, yeah. I work with like patients with tbi they they get communication um like social communication disorders kind of thing so where they okay. kind of might lose an ability to say appropriate things at the appropriate time. That'd be nice. Or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, so that might... Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, so somebody told me that he had apologized to them and then word got back to me. Anyway, <laughs> so that program, um, I think, is really cool because it's like, it one great networking opportunity like yeah. we got to connect we wouldn't have That's otherwise true. unless somehow through aaron newman as <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> some, who knows yeah the stars aligned <laughs> exactly um but it's like it was a cool program just to get mm -hmm. to get you to like meet people that you might not otherwise i feel yeah and to to apply our knowledge in like different ways mm -hmm. and for for like the makeup of the class was interesting too because you would have been finishing your third year yeah and i was probably third year phd yeah there was quite a big yeah difference in where people were at i think there was uh, who was it um from she's from california um dana dana yes dana she was a postdoc yeah and um, even there's a few people who were even working they weren't yeah. even in their studies anymore so right right they provided a different perspective as well yeah. Yeah. so that was cool yeah um do you what do you think of those kind of programs like do do you think that because there's a lot so mm. the insert create programs fund maybe like 15 programs like that per year and each runs for i think five years mm. do you think that it's like a value it adds a value i really liked it i think that like even though i'm not pursuing anything within that field i think it was the first time that i actually learned about business models mm. and like how to you know how to make a pitch and how to sell yourself and and kind of just all the things that you don't learn in, in undergrad or in like you know, in school, when you're when you're in something like neuroscience, it's really just like focusing on the facts and and not kind of like how how do you apply this to real life? How does it, you know, how can you take this and make it into something that you know might have meaning to someone's life, like creating a technology that might help someone with a traumatic brain injury? Mm -hmm. So I think it was the first time that I was able to kind of take a step back and see it from a bigger picture. 
And right. I, I see that there's a lot of value in that. And it, it attracts certain type of people that are mm-hmm. interested in kind of bridging, you know, the outside world, if you say, and what we're learning kind of in our day-to-day, like, schooling. Mm-hmm. I, think that that's, I think that that should be kind of done more. Right. And I think it should be more accessible to people. It shouldn't just be through these, like, two-week programs. It might be something that could be a course that you take in university that's kind of like you could take it you know once or twice and you mm-hmm. kind of build upon it because i think the a lot of what we see now in, in terms of technology all starts from that right it yeah. starts from the things that you might have an idea that you learn you know you learn something and then you build off of it and yeah i don't know what what do you what do you think of these sorts of programs i think they're super helpful they're well they're they're great value because like mm-hmm. the the, the whole process of like do, doing grad school and all that is it's like meant for people to become profs mm-hmm. and like I'm sure we've talked about this a lot on the podcast uh, and I talk about it all the time to anybody who'll listen to me honestly but like the when you're doing grad school or or whatever there's like either you go to become a professor or th- the alternative careers Mm -hmm. it's kind of the way that it's framed but the reality is that like becoming a professor is the alternative you know like kind of just like goes back to yeah like professor yeah i mean like you have um 20 per 20 to 30 percent chance that 20 to 30 percent of phd graduates will become professors that's smaller than i thought yeah, so it's super tiny, and it gets even smaller in, in other fields. Mm. So, like, if you're going to get a job where you apply your research to the real world and sort of, like, you go into business, mm-hmm. that's the major- That's the actual path that most people take. Like, I'm still kind of <laughs> dealing with, like, what's the value of my PhD? Mm-hmm. Um, and had I not had the the opportunity to do, to participate in what the program that we participated in mm-hmm. i'd probably have an even tougher time to see like how it can apply mm-hmm. no definitely um but ryerson has so i need to get somebody from ryerson on the show if you're listening yeah, <laughs> yeah. <Find us. laughs> rita i sent you an email um so Ryerson has this uh, this uh, structure called zones. So it's kind of like they've got the university and then there are zones. And one of the zones is the science discovery zone. Okay. Um, and that that zone actually offers a course in entrepreneurship. So undergrads can actually take this class. And I guess like the whole class is take science and like make a business out of it. And it doesn't have to become like shopify or whatever Mm -hmm. but it kind of shows you that process that we went through Mm -hmm. and it's just like a regular class and i think that's super cool that is really cool i had no idea about the program i think those should be more mainstream Mm -hmm. should be talking about this more yeah more openly more commonly because i mean i didn't know that only 20 to 30 percent became professors because most people that i've spoken to that are that are doing their phd are interested in teaching or having Mm -hmm. a lab or very kind of into staying into you know academia, right? Um, it's I haven't come across a lot of people that are trying to branch out um, yeah. while they're in their PhD, right? And it's like if you think of how many 
PhDs are given yearly versus how many openings there are. Yeah. It kind of like you you kind of think about it for a second. And it's like oh geez yeah yeah there are it's, very few positions yeah. yeah and they're they're permanent once yeah. you're a prof like, like that's it that's <laughs> that's your track it's like yeah. set out for you but it doesn't give you a lot of like room I guess even yeah. within that position to do other things mm-hmm. unless you I don't know start a business yeah <laughs> it's like a side side gig as a professor yeah so um, you finish your undergrad. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Montreal mm-hmm. to uh, do a clinical master, the yeah. one you were accepted in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the only place that would accept you. Yes. Uh, did you apply at many places? I only applied to Dow and McGill. I didn't have any of the requirements for those schools. Okay. And I actually didn't want to apply to Dow because I knew that I would have to stay if I did. Uh-huh. And not that I don't, I didn't want to stay. I wanted to experience moving out and it's kind of like break, you know, break the... The, I guess a lot of people don't expect um, a Muslim, you know, woman to go out and study on her own, on oh. her own. So that's something that I kind of wanted to do and experience. And but my parents were like, okay, well, you can apply to McGill. We support you, but they're like, but you have to apply to Dow. And I was like, oh, but I didn't write the exam. I can't. I didn't write the GRE. They're like, oh, do you have yeah. time to write it? And I'm like, there's oh, one. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's the last one that I could write is in seven days. They're like, just just write it, okay? I was like, okay. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, if I do badly in that, whatever. But also, it was just like getting into McGill might be really hard. Like I've heard people talk about how it isn't it isn't an easy. But I didn't know a lot about the field, whereas a lot mm-hmm. of people had applied more than once or knew people in the in the program or in the field. So I applied to both Dal and McGill, and I got into both. But oh. I was able oh. to, ooh, yeah, my parents were kind of like, okay, she's, she's leaving. Isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's super impressive. So you, you studied for seven days for a GRE <laughs> and you did well enough to get accepted at Dow. Yeah. I wouldn't even say I did like super well on it, but I think it, I, I don't even think they really cared about, not that they don't care about it, but uh-huh. I, I think it was other things that might've been made up for it <laughs> okay sure yeah. uh-huh. like i've done the gre and i think i studied for like months i should have studied for months yeah. i was just like the math part was okay but the english part i was like these are all big words I, yeah i don't know these words did you find that so for basically the gre you've got what is it you have like a math part where it's kind of pretty complicated math mm-hmm. it was like tricky mm-hmm. um and then there's a vocabulary section like word is yeah what like multiple choice and it's like mm-hmm. emancipated is to blah blah as blah blah is to blah blah yeah something like i that. really don't like the gre in the sense that like i don't see the point of it what is the point of testing all these big you know big words that i will never use or really know and and to test someone and say you are you know i i don't like standardized testing yeah. mcat lsat pmat all these um exams that you know deem you smart whatever yeah. intelligent or smart means to be accepted to these programs um which in, like this is testing my knowledge of memorizing yeah. words and this, test taking and yeah and test taking and i think that's like if they, they just want to see how you test but i think that 
for people who've done decently well in in their in their courses whether or not if it's test mm-hmm. or writing base i think that that says a lot but i think that um i could talk a long time about this but like a May- lot- maybe the next episode yeah, we could just probably. go on about <laughs> totally <laughs> me ranting on about how i think these standardized testing like are are doing an injustice to to the system and i think it's really propagating a system of like inequality because there are a lot of really great people who might become amazing physicians or amazing mm-hmm. you know you know speech therapists but are being hindered because they don't take you know are don't test well in these very standardized yeah. ways so i think i think for me i always really struggled with like what's the point of this and is it really important mm-hmm. um, and yeah it's really hard to study for them and they're expensive they are yeah and it's like not to not to put on my conspiracy conspiracy hat but it's, i'm definitely putting on my conspiracy I hat it. i love it and, <laughs> and it's like it's these uh, what like two or three com- or maybe a couple companies yeah. so it's a couple companies that basically dictates who mm-hmm. gets into school or who doesn't and there's such a weird industry around it. So you pay, it's what, like 500 per exam or something? Yeah. And then they offer these courses that are like $3,000 mm-hmm. for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And then they offer all these books and all these things. And it's like, uh, it's ridiculous. I, I don't agree with it. It's an, yeah. it's an industry. Yeah, it's an industry. It's capitalizing off of students that really want to get into, you know, dentistry or what whatnot. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think that... I think the schools that use something like the GRE or the MCAT, I think, I think that, I think that we need to move away from that. For sure. And I think the schools that don't have these like exams, I think they get different types of people that come. Mm-hmm. So you know, get well-rounded students that you know didn't all do, you know, microbiology yeah. or one specific field. They're you know well-versed in another field that could really apply, especially in the clinical. Yeah. And that can afford it. Of course. Like, it's not everybody who can afford several thousand dollars and that much time to study. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you do get that kind of person. Exactly. You get, you really are looking for, you know, a specific type of person who has, you know, that privilege Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of taking, like you said, taking time off, taking the energy, even the ability to study for these exams. It's very... Um, you know, it attracts a certain type of person. Yeah. And I guess it's like, on the flip side, universities, I guess, want to measure a certain level of achievement, mm-hmm. at the ability to, like, be smart, I guess. Yeah. And unless, unless you have, like, a centralized body that standardizes mm-hmm. that kind of, like, level of achievement then it's difficult to to say oh you are a smart person so Mm -hmm. we'll let you in and also like all the other universities are going to think you're smart so you can yeah get in there exactly yeah it's a really weird it's a like when you take yourself out of it like yeah you're looking and you're like wow and then you see the people that come out in these programs and like not all of them are like the best sociable people yeah like this is going to be my future like doctor like ooh, like yeah they scored 98 percent, and they're super smart but like what what are we doing to you know to make more approachable more yeah. you know compassionate people so mm-hmm. i think that 
intelligence however we want to measure that i'm kind of really skeptical on what what is intelligence mm-hmm. you know like going to school does that make you intelligent yeah. having access to education does that make you intelligent what about people who couldn't afford to go to university yeah. you know they're probably equally or more intelligent than yeah. than myself so it's like kind of really understanding what the sem- even the semantics behind what we deem as intelligent what does semantics mean i hear okay. it all the time <laughs> And I'm like, yes. It's like, um, I guess, like, the meaning of the word. So, like, if you... I had to take a whole course on semantics in undergrad uh, in French, which I didn't understand much of. Um, It's really going to the the core of what the the word means. So, kind of, um, you know, you have the grammar, which is, like, the big... Kind of the bigger picture of the sentence. And then Mm -hmm. once you break it down to such a small level, we have what that specific word means and mm-hmm. kind of also how we perceive it as another way. Okay. Like how, how do you interpret this word? Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the meaning. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. We're obviously not going to find the solution to like replace standardized <laughs> testing. Um, on the show, we might, we might, we might, yeah. but probably not because we're going <laughs> to move on to a different topic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it is something that's, Mm-hmm. I guess, like, because we only do it once in our academic careers, it's like a hassle mm-hmm. and you hate it, and then you never think about it ever again. So, that's yeah. probably how they're able to just keep it. Yeah, exactly. Like, rip the band aid off, yeah. and like, that's it. You get where you want to get to, or you've tried several times and it's just not for you, and you have to change kind of your career or your, your path. Yeah. in life because of this insane. And then the institutions are like, well, there are no other alternatives and mm-hmm. nobody's really complaining about it too much. Mm-hmm. So we'll just keep on we'll doing keep it. it. Yeah, there isn't a push from, I guess, a bigger group of people yeah. to kind of say, this, is, this isn't necessary. Yeah. yeah. Did you, so I lived in Korea for a year. Oh. And yeah, and uh, so in Korea, standardized testing is like king. Um, and they have this day in high school where it's standardized. It's like this, the standardized test. Have you like, have you heard heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen quite a few Korean shows or dramas. Right. Right. And it's like, they actually shut down. Like the city actually shuts down for the standardized testing. Um, what is it? Buses. Like, I didn't have to go to work on that day. So traffic is shut down, basically, because if you're a student and you can't get to your standardized test, you'd just be so stressed. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think there's, like, something about flights are, like, rerouted. So it's, I'm I'm not 100% sure. I might be kind of (laughs) mixing this up, but it's, like, the whole country. But it's, like, really intense. Yeah, it's, like, standardized testing to the max. Anyway, so you were accepted at McGill, mm-hmm. away from home. Away from home. Um, in clinical speech language pathology. Yes. And so what is that? Um, wow. Uh, is it, <laughs> I'm still learning, to be honest. There's so much in this field. So as a speech um, language pathologist or speech therapist, lots of terms that you, we could use. I'm going to say SLP just because it's so much easier mm-hmm. to say. Um, We work with communication, and that's like the biggest way to say it. We work with communication, um, 
And what really drew me to it is that you could work with children. A lot of the 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 field is based on working with kids in schools that you know might have difficulty in even their speech. So if they have like um if they have a stutter, if they um if they have even uh, a lisp, these are like very minor things that people usually think of like, oh, speech therapist, you work with lisps, mm-hmm. but that's such a small part of it. We also work with kids who have um, reading and writing dis- like uh, difficulties, kids who um, have difficulty in understanding and expressing language, so it's a language in general. So we mm-hmm. could also work with kids with special needs. Um, kids who are um, who are on the um, who have autism as well, so it's a really wide. So if you're very interested in a niche in that, you can definitely find oh, okay, a niche cool. within working with kids. And we also work in with adults. We work with um, people who who've had a stroke um, that has impacted their ability to to speak and understand language, also reading and writing. We also work with um, people with difficulty swallowing. This is something right. that I learned new. Yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. know a lot about that because I just assumed, okay, we work um, we work with like language, but we also do swallowing. We learn a lot about the mechanisms that are important for swallowing. Um, we share this profession with other, so occupational therapists and... And why is that? So like swallowing, I also, so my PhD is in audiology and usually it's like audiology and SLP. So we're kind of like BFFs. Yeah, basically (laughs) is what we're getting at. Um, And I feel like the swallowing side of things is fairly new, or at least I hadn't heard about it Mm -hmm. for a while, or it was very recent that I started hearing about it. And what, like, why, why is that a thing? Who cares? Like to us? Yeah, like, like as an SLP, who mm-hmm. cares about swallowing? Like, I, what's the big deal? Why should why should somebody go to school for swallowing? It's like so easy. Yeah, I guess it's for people who have something that we call dysphagia, which means um, a difficulty in swallowing. So it mm-hmm. could be at different levels of the the tract, but this is usually found in people who've had something like uh, esophageal cancer who've also who've had strokes have difficulty mm-hmm. swallowing people who ate even just aging in general the yeah. body you start having more difficulty swallowing and then food gets down the wrong tube mm-hmm. so can it's a it's a i think i'm i'm still learning a lot about it but there's there's a lot that goes into swallowing that i yeah. never really thought about because it's so automatic when you do it but when you lose the ability to do it properly it becomes <laughs> so hard yeah. and you see that a lot of patients get very depressed and very mm-hmm. very upset because you're taking away something that you enjoy doing so you enjoyed eating and now you you can't even enjoy that so there's mm-hmm. a lot of counseling that also goes into the field oh really in general yeah so depending on you know if you're working with kids you do a lot of working in behavior management but also working with parents and counseling parents because Mm -hmm, that you know having a child that you know has a severe you know learning disability it's going to be you know they're grieving as parents to what they thought their child was going to be like and i think that that within itself is very emotionally taxing yeah and also when you work in with stroke patients who've had strokes or traumatic brain injuries, um, you know, you're also dealing with the re- the assessment portion, but also the rehab portion. Okay. And you're dealing with also kind of how are these people going to live 
after this trauma. Right, right. So it's kind of like grieving your past self and kind of learning to adapt with what you have. So I think it's, yeah. And that all falls under the S- It all like, falls. And we wow. also work with voice. And okay. yeah, we work with voice. We could work with actors. We can even work with kids who've had voice disorders. So difficulty. Okay. I sound like I have a voice disorder today because I'm sick, but <clears throat> we... I know a great SLP. Yeah. <laughs> Refer her to me, please. Um, yeah, so it's such a wide field. And if you don't we really want to work with kids, you could work with adults. You can mm-hmm. work with both. It's like, it's, yeah, there's a lot of research that's in the field as well that's coming out um, in terms of like uh, bilingualism in right. children and even in elderly stage. Like if, you know, being bilingual will help you when you have a stroke and trying to regain your language. So there's a lot of really cool research out there, but I feel like it's because we're in the medical field and also education and depending on the school, Mm. it's my experience personally has been, it's really hard for people in the medical field who are super, you know, like nurses or doctors or even occupational therapists and physical therapists working with them we're often undervalued or underlooked. Not a lot of people know what we do. Right, yeah. So I think even within just doing stuff with other schools within the like McGill Faculty of Medicine, a lot of the times I'd have students that would be like, what's SLP? Like, I've never heard of that. And I'm like, we have a whole department, you know, come. Yeah. And I'm just like, really like, I love advocating. I love talking to people about what we do and like really advocating for our role within within interprofessional groups. So I think it was really interesting to see what it was like when you interact with other professions because Mm -hmm. a lot of them are like, I don't know what you do. Or like, you know, in Quebec, um, occupational therapists also do swallowing and um, dietitians also do swallowing. So there's always just like, where does my field end and where does theirs begin and how do we share this so there's a lot of like politics behind yeah behind the scenes that you don't really learn about in school until you're like out doing your placement you're like okay this is this is something else so are there things um that slps kind of can't touch like Mm -hmm. in terms so in audiology in quebec audiologists can um do the diagnostic mm-hmm. part, but they can't sell hearing aids. Yeah. So is there sort of mm-hmm. like a policy aspect to SLPs where the, I guess the association or regulatory body mm-hmm. says like, you yeah. can't do swallowing for like food or something. Yeah. So, I mean, we also work with audiologists. So we were trained, mm-hmm. we did audiology as well in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can assess hearing, but we can't diagnose. Whoa, them. whoa. Back. Back up. Now you're getting on, on the audiologist's like turf. So, yeah. so yeah, we could do like um, screenings. We can't okay. like assess full like assessment, but we could do mm-hmm. like screenings. And right. we went and we did screenings for like in schools just to get used to using the equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can do like screenings, but we can't do a full assessment. And okay. We can't diagnose like, hi, you have a, a hearing, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you can't. Like, you can't sit there and say this and this and this, but you can kind of, like, do a preliminary screening and, and refer to an audiologist. Right. Which is something that I I also did in, in the hospital when I was doing my final placement was 
I would just, you know, when I realized that someone was having difficulty hearing, I would mm. just say, like, have you had your hearing checked? Is this something you're interested in? And then I would just say, like, would you like to be referred? And would refer. We work also with psychologists and psychiatrists. Okay. So we can, um, we can't assess their, like, memory in a lot of the psychologist sphere. We work with them. And, like, language does require memory, for example. Right. Um, but we can't you know call it memory we can call it kind of like word retrieval mm. so it's it's a bit different um making sure that you're using the right terms and then also making sure you stay within your field right are there things that you you feel because like i feel it, it's pro- you probably work especially in like multidisciplinary teams mm-hmm. where there's audiologists slps oh. um What's the other one? The ergotherapy. Ergo What's uh, occupational therapist? Occupational therapist. Thank you. Um, and so, like, are there things that that really the I don't know the audiologist would say like don't do that. Where mm-hmm. when you're working in a team, it like mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah, I think it's but, more like known okay. right away. Like I know that like I can't sit there and, and diagnose hearing okay. and say this is you know. This is your hearing loss or kind of also it's hard because especially with like occupational therapists in Quebec, we share, we, we share swallowing. Okay. And I find that's the one thing that it's, it's challenging because we are both able to do it, but it really depends on, on the environment that we're in and what Mm. to say that, um, the policy in that hospital or that like health, um, the government health can say, okay, occupational therapists do swallowing SLPs. You don't. So it's, it's like different hospitals have different mm-hmm. sort of tasks. Ex- yeah, um, exactly. Attri- attri- attribution. Attribution. Att- attribution. Yes. <laughs> that's the right emphasis. That I was looking for. Yeah. So okay. I guess it, like in the French sector, the, the SLPs do some more swallowing in the English. Mm. It's kind of split, but occupationals mostly do it. And it's kind of like you can either be very professional about it and kind of accept accept it, or you could have like a um, you could kind of fight over right. over it, and that doesn't no one ends up winning in that. Or you can kind of I think be smart about it and kind of like push for your field. So even advocating for the importance of speech therapy in these settings is within itself something that we have to do and I, right. and I did a lot of when I was doing the program I was kind of like oh, that yeah. person that people were like oh yes oh, there she is again like oh man like she doesn't you know shut up about equality and like you know trying to push for advocacy for our profession and even within the field of trying to make it more inclusive to who has access to this profession and also like how do we interact with our patients so mm-hmm. i think even just making sure that we come out of it accountable to our actions as clinicians to our pa- you know to our clients and our patients on how we are able to treat their you know treat their communication disorders um, but also treat it in a way that is um that is accountable in terms of just like making sure that we don't oppress a certain person because of their background or their beliefs or, you know, their experiences or their identities. Can you give me like an example? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so for example, working within an indigenous community, okay. oftentimes we work in, um, so I had the privilege of working with an indigenous community for a month, um, assessing children who in both French and Algonquin. So for example, like we, all of our tests are standardized in English and French, mm -hmm. and we don't have the means to assess, say, another language like Arabic or Algonquin. Do we then disregard that language? Mm. Do we disregard the fact that the culture in which the child grew up influences the way they interact with language? Uh, so it gets really, yeah. yeah, it gets really messy if you're unable to see that this child actually is at the level they're supposed to be because, say, in a specific culture, children don't talk a lot. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, in, huh. say, specific cultures, I can't give a name to it, but we there are certain cultures that children shouldn't make eye contact with adults. Okay. You know, for us, that's like a sign, like, okay, social communication, this yeah. child isn't developing, this is not normal for us, but in this setting, it is. And okay. kind of like making sure that we address these differences and also are aware that we're not misdiagnosing or mislabeling a child because of these differences. That's tough, eh? It is. Like you've got probably the policy piece of like mm -hmm. which language you're going to address, but then you want to make sure that there's a standardized test and to develop that you need to have like mm -hmm. sort of there's years of research to validate it. Yeah. So it's really challenging. And I think that's why I am kind of, I'm torn being in this profession because when working with children, we don't have a lot of research on bilingualism. So a lot of our, our assessments are in English. Whereas in Montreal, every child I worked with was trilingual. Right. They all were trilingual to a certain extent. They all were learning French and English in school and spoke another language at home. Hmm. So when you're assessing a child, you, we don't have the means to formally assess their other language, but we have to come up with a diagnosis and we have to use these standardized norms to say this child falls within the norms or they're severely yeah. impaired or moderately impaired. And then depending on what you give them, they can then get access to funding from the government. Oh, jeez. And it's very specific to, like, they have to have a moderate in the in this field and a, yeah. and a severely impaired in this field. They have to be in, like, the first percentile to get any resources. So that's really frustrating. I remember just sitting there and, like, boiling and just being like, this is so unfair. I can't stand it. The fact that we, we deem a lot of children who have a lot of difficulty un- you know, they are not worthy of getting funding because they're not that impaired. Right. So instead of pushing the kids who might have moderate impairments, you know, we only want to help the ones who have severe impairments. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's kind of just this like politics on yeah. like who gets funding, who doesn't, how, you know, who can you apply to get, you know, SLP funding in schools, you know, also other funding, you know, coded get to get a code, which then deems you as What's being... A code? So in Quebec, the way it works, I have yet to learn about the Ontario system, uh -huh. but in Quebec, the way it works is you, when a child is in the school, you assess them as a team and you then can apply for a code for them, which then okay. gives them a certain amount of funding. Okay. So code 34 is someone who has like a language disability, language okay. impairment, which you're able to say they have this severity and this severity, they get this code. 
but not a lot of children can get this code because they don't have that severity. Okay. But they still have a lot of difficulty. Right. So who... I guess this is all evidence-based, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's probably a body of research that mm-hmm. politicians, I guess, looked at. I want to hope, <laughs> but I don't think so. I just yeah. think it really comes down to money. I okay. think it really comes down to the fact that there isn't a lot of funding, or they right. say there isn't a lot of funding. There totally is. Yeah. Enough funding for, for a certain amount of kids to get help. Okay. So they make it kind of really strict so right. that only a certain amount in which you're not overspending the budget. Mm-hmm. Whereas for another thing, like when a child gets diagnosed with autism, they also get a code and they get a lot of support Right. Um, within all the different fields. So it, it's like, it's, it's really frustrating when you want to do your job, but you're working yeah. within a system that doesn't let you, you know, give your all to it and it's really hard because you know there aren't a lot of slps in schools Mm -hmm. and so you can't work with kids who don't have severe impairments you can only work with the severe ones and even then you're seeing them half an hour a week can you do anything and not no no that's yeah so it's really it's conflicting because you want to see progress and you don't yeah and it's all because there aren't a lot of people being hired and there also aren't a lot of, you know, there's a lot of funding and support. So mm-hmm. it, that's what really frustrates me in the school system and also working within private isn't something that I'm interested in because um, because I, I don't think it's accessible. Right. Yeah. Lots, lots going on there. I yeah. feel like SLPs are in this weird place where it's like... It's so weird. You've got... You're almost like the gatekeepers for a lot of resources to help mm-hmm. out these kids. And at the same time, the criteria that you would use to gatekeep seem kind of arbitrary and... Mm-hmm. Probably they probably change quite a bit based on what's like hot, I guess, or what the advocacy groups probably exactly, and what the government has. What they yeah, like whichever mm-hmm. priorities and in in favor the flavor of like mm-hmm. the year, I guess. Yeah. Do you do you recommend being an SLP? I feel like oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, I yeah, do. you do. Yeah, it's a. It's such a diverse field, and yeah. I know so little. Like, I haven't worked yet in the field right, right, right. as an actual professional that gets paid for, you know, working. Um, so unpaid internships are another thing that are <laughs> really not great. Yeah. But I'll save that for the next episode. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but, yeah, no, I definitely recommend it. I think that if you have a passion for working with people and you really you like rehab, you also you know, want to improve in communication. And I think that it's so important. Like if that's something you have a passion in, yes, it is. It is an amazing field. I recommend it. But also realize that there's a lot wrong in the systems that surround this field. That it's also a really new profession. It's only like 50, 60 years old. So I think that there's so much room to, to do more and that we we need to kind of come together and advocate for that. So it's a lot of pressure. Cool. Lots of, lots of room for improvement. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
So do uh, do you want to join next uh, next podcast? Next podcast? <laughs> do you want do you want to keep this conversation sure. going? Yeah, cool, cool. Not? So if uh, I don't know if you have any questions for Yasmin or uh, if you are an SLP and you have opinions, leave, yes. <laughs> uh, leave us a tweet at dyes underscore podcast and. Next week, we're we're still going to talk about SLPs, kind of where uh, where there's opportunities for for growth, where science fits into mm-hmm. all that, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to keep uh, keep on chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you, bro.